Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. New activation and upfront payment for three-month plan required. Taxes and fees extra. Additional restrictions apply. See mintmobile.com for full terms. Are you tired of doing the same workouts day in, day out? Well, check out the Peloton app. Wherever you are, whatever your mood, the Peloton app has something for you. Lunch hour power walk. Park Pilates. Beach yoga? The Peloton app has it all. Try it today. Download the Peloton app and get your first 30 days free. New paid memberships only starting at $12.99 a month after trial unless canceled. Terms apply. Selling your car to Carvana is as easy as... As easy as pie? Sure. All you have to do is enter your license plate or VIN. As easy as a stroll in the park. Okay. Then just answer a few questions and you'll get a real offer in seconds. As easy as singing... Why not? Schedule a pickup or drop-off, and Carvana will pay you that amount right on the spot. As easy as playing guitar. Actually, I find that kind of difficult. But selling your car to Carvana is as easy as... Can be. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get an instant offer today. And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is so cool. He is video game designer and writer Sam Barlow. He was the lead designer and writer for Silent Hill Origins and Shattered Memories and has written award-winning games like Her Story and Telling Lies. His latest game, Immortality, just won awards at the Game Developers Conference and BAFTA Games. Welcome to the show and congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. You had kind of a busy month going from GDC then to to BAFTAs and your game is racking up awards. It's awesome. It was awesome, but it also physically hurt me. Like coming out of, I still, you know, my body's still not ready to face the world (laughs) after the pandemic and it was like a week of so the game developers conference and then they, in the middle they have the awards and they do two award shows in one night and oh then, God. And, and it's a week where there's lots of uh, networking right and, yeah. and partying and stuff and then flew back flew straight out to the baftas and then from that i flew up to scotland to talk to some students and so by the time i got back here i was very pleased to have my haul of of shiny things but uh, i was i needed to sleep yeah <laughs> Well, I was, 
I was impressed because there's a lot of really strong. I I think there was a lot of strong talent this year at the Baftas, and um, I was I, while I was hoping for uh, immortality to rack up another award. I there there was a lot of a lot of great um, entries this year. I thought it was a crazy year. Like I mean, was Elden Ring came out early in the year, and it was yeah. like, oh god, well that's it. That's just going <laughs> to sweep everything. And then and then at the end of the year, like God of War came out, just yep. to, you know, the one two punch to finish us off. But there were so many interesting uh games in the indie space as well, like Norco, Pentiment, Tunic, uh just tons of where I was like, ah oh, damn it, like I would make I wouldn't know which one to choose, even if I was being like selfish. Right. There are great entries, and I was I was really surprised to see what was what's it called? Vamp is it Vampire Slayers or something like that? Vampire Survivors. Survivors, yeah. Racking up uh the best get best game i think right wait is that the one where it's just like the like you're basically just it's like a you're just shooting a ton of waves of enemy okay steve loves that mm-hmm. my, sorry my husband and i love that game i forgot the name of it yeah yeah you just you're just a little sprite it's very castlevania-y like mm-hmm. yeah. the sprites could I, i'm guessing they didn't because they'd have been in trouble but they, they almost look like they could have come from castlevania so yeah it's all vampires and chicken and whips and magic spells um but i was surprised that that game didn't win more stuff throughout the year because it did essentially come out of nowhere. Yeah. And although I think there was a precedent, like there was another game that they had been inspired by that had a similar shtick. way that game just showed up, took over, became this huge hit, essentially invented its own kind of micro genre. To me, seemed like the kind of thing that would get it more plaudits, right? Especially on the commercial side of like, oh yeah, you just turned up and made like a huge stinking pile of cash. Right. But it was very cool. Yeah, I I tried it and it's it's very compelling. It's yeah. it's that thing of like stripping away a lot of what you think is important in a game till you get to just like the the chunky core that is this these loops of of just murdering things and collecting <laughs> things. And and it has like in like secrety things right there's there's like hidden levels and you're not quite sure what's going on so it has like a little bit of interesting kind of mystery to it but yeah, yeah. i enjoyed that so your game though immortality so i've played i played all three of your uh fmv well i think you have another one war games i haven't i've not i did not touch that one but her story telling lies immortality all seem to like build on each other in terms of more complexity to what what you're doing and kind of changing how you as a viewer interact with your media. Can you tell listeners a little bit about Immortality and how you kind of went in uh, with that vice, what you used to do with searching for text and stuff? Yeah, so the, the basic premise of Immortality is uh, Marissa Marcel is an actress who in uh, the late 60s is cast in her first role. Uh, is, is Great things are expected of her. But Marissa only goes on to ever shoot three movies and none of these three movies ever comes out. Now in 2023, uh, you know, these are these three lost movies. No one knows what happened to Marissa Marcel. She disappeared. And, and so the premise is, you know, you're asked the question, what happened to Marissa Marcel? And the, the game is we've discovered this cache of footage from these missing movies and you get to look through them and the, the core kind of mechanic, you're kind of, in this world that's a sort of abstracted movieola. So you can rewind the footage, scrub through it, frame advance, kind of get really nitty gritty with the footage. Um, but then we have this really cool game mechanic where any point you can pause the footage and click on and essentially anything on the screen and the game will then generate a match cut 
to another piece of footage. So mm-hmm. I might click on a character's face or I'll click on a dagger prop or uh, I'll be like, oh, there's lots of flower imagery here. I'll click on this rose and it will magically take me to another piece of footage, which I may not have seen before. So you're kind of exploring through this this sort of uh i think one of our playtesters was like i felt like i was lucid dreaming i was just like just this chain of imagery and and you're falling down this rabbit hole and discovering things um so it's it's kind of you know an, an exploratory journey through kind of uh old movies and as you go you discover like what's going on behind the scenes because this footage is it's not edited finished footage it's like these are the the dailies and these are the rushes from the movie set so you'll see like what happens before they call action you'll see like you know aborted takes or things that have gone wrong and and that's where you start to kind of dig into the the real story but yeah it, it you know i started in 2015 her story came out and that was uh very pure in that I'd been working in in bigger games for a while. This was my indie game, and I wanted to push things as far as I could in this one game, given that it, it may be my only indie game, right? I didn't know how it was going to go. So I wanted, I really wanted to make a detective game, a police mm-hmm. procedural kind of game, because I love that stuff, and then no one had really nailed that. And so, you know, from that, intention came this game where you were searching in a police database and looking at video footage of this woman's interviews and so that that all came kind of organically from me thinking about police interviews and and investigations and discovering all this kind of true crime footage which was just about to kind of hit the mainstream yeah and and really like her story was a, a, a huge hit and so i was like okay i get to make another one and 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 really from then onwards i I was like, well, what is it that's interesting to me about what I did in her story now that I've made it and I can look back? And it was this idea of exploring the story, exploring video of like, oh, this is a very different way to experience like filmed performance and storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's this interesting, like I'm always interested in adversarial is not the right word, but like an interesting relationship between the game and the player. And I think all of these games are kind of slightly provocative in that they they kind of don't tell you what's going on. They're like, here's just some stuff. You exactly. want to figure it out? And like explicitly, like her story starts with an empty old computer desktop. It's like the most boring thing in the world. But there's something provocative about that of like, okay, here's this extremely boring, opaque thing. See if you can dig and extract the juicy stuff that's there. Um, and, and immortality uh, without spoiling it too much, like the idea was like, can we make... Uh, a story experience can we make something that is horror essentially in the horror genre that makes things feel a little bit more alive or Mm -hmm. that some latent something that's there that is not a hundred percent lovely um yeah it's kind of pushing back (laughs) yeah so there's i have so many questions for based on the things you just said but one of the ones that i that like has I think one of my favorite moments in all three of those games is the moment where you feel like you might have accidentally jumped into the deep end where like you're exploring something and it's one thing. And then it's all of a sudden you are seeing something that you feel like you probably shouldn't have seen. Cause I was thinking in particular, I was playing, I was replaying telling lies recently. And I was thinking about how I was watching this and I was watching this kind of 
adulterous affair unfold between like the main character and there was this this cam woman a friend that he had made his wife at home with the kid and we're following all this and then all of a sudden without spoiling anything i'm on a boat and i'm seeing this meeting take place on a boat and i was like what is going on here because i felt like i was following just an adulterous thing and then in immortality your just release game it was the first time i'm scrolling backwards and i see something that i'm like oh wait I don't think we're supposed to be seeing this. It's, it's that feeling of of diving into something that you're not prepared for that um, I love it. How do you kind of create those those moments uh, in your game where it's like it's one thing and then there's that moment that people are like, oh, shit, this is something different. That's a good question. I think like for me, not to go off on a tangent, like I love, for example, like I love the books of Gene Wolfe, right? And he writes these books that you'll read like 4,000 pages or whatever, these huge books. Mm-hmm. And you'll get to the end and you'll be like, there was something going on. I don't know what happened. I don't know. You'll be like, I, I don't 100% know what just happened in this book, but there was something big and, and significant that was there and it was below the surface. And if I was smarter, maybe I would have picked it up. And, and he even says like, I designed my books to be read like three or four times. Yeah. And it's like, cool, dude, but it's, it's 2023. Like no one's reading a book four times. Like, it's just not going to happen. So like, and, and what I like with all these games and, you know, her story started specifically with the idea of how do you tell a mystery in a way that's interesting and deconstructed. And, and so for me, it's, it's having these stories that have these layers. So I know that, that there's the surface layer, which gets people in the door that is, did this woman murder her husband? What happened to Marissa Marcel? And then I know, like, I, I don't proceed until I have this story. And a lot of the story development we're doing is, like, off screen, right? And it's, it's oh, well, this is the surface layer, but this other thing's happening. But beneath that, there's this other thing. And then beneath that, there's this other thing. And then we kind of build the story up and, and with these formats, kind of let it sprawl in all sorts of directions so that then when people start digging into it, you know, they're, they're going to tunnel in in different ways, but as they essentially, you know, put the jigsaw pieces together, they're building up their own kind of mental map of the story. And, and sometimes you will get, you'll be like, wait a minute, if I, now I've seen these three things together, could this be what's going on? Right. I have an idea. And sometimes you can then kind of, uh, prove out that idea by searching for a word or clicking on some things. And then sometimes you'll get drummed into something that is surprising. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that stuff does fascinate me because I'm like really interested in, uh, when we did Silent Hill Shadow Memories, I went very deep on like, how do twists work? Like, what is a good twist? Uh, and I think for a long time, especially in video games, there was this thing of, of like having a big, what the fuck twist was, was like the badge of honor. Like, and I think like Bioshock was the, was like the, the poster boy of like, oh, yeah. you play through the whole game and then it's like, oh, what the fuck? But not to turn this into a Bioshock thing, like I actually think the Bioshock Infant Twist is much better than Bioshock 1 because for me, like the the gauge for is this a good twist isn't like the violence of the what the fuck. It's does the story become more interesting yeah. now? Mm-hmm. And really what a twist does is you build up a story and then you have this twist and it kind of reboots your idea of the story into a more interesting version. And then and every if you can do subsequent twists, even better, right? And there's an element as well of like a good twist shouldn't be completely out of nowhere, yeah. right? Because anyone could do that, right? The butler did it. But but 
having the seeds be sowed throughout the whole thing so that you have a sense of it or you've had an idea and then dismissed it. And then you're like, oh, no, we are moving into this more interesting, complicated story. But it's as well as, uh, you know, I think the first, especially with her story, people would ask me, like, how do you tell a good story if you're not in control of the order in which people discover things, right? Like with her story, you could, in theory type in a word and immediately get the uh the confession right right and for me that the reason that works is like the ordering of of the plot is kind of arbitrary right you could make pulp fiction and you could make the completely linear version of pulp fiction and it would in both cases it would still be a story that worked and made you feel sad and happy and whatever but differently and right and and i think like something like breaking bad i think made it trendy as well in in premium tv to do the the kind of flash forward thing mm-hmm. of like we're going to open episode one with there's a guy about to i think running around in his underwear and he's about to kill himself because yes. you know and you're like what the hell and then jump, you rewind and then like i think i think it's like the second or third season of breaking bad they kept showing you this exploded teddy bear yep the, yes. the pool with the, Which the teddy bear floating and stuff it's like slightly cheating because it's like we know we're gonna have a few episodes where nothing's gonna happen and it's all interrelational stuff but like don't worry because the teddy bear's gonna explode <laughs> but you know so sometimes you, if you get and and the key thing with these games is if you get that whoa what did i just see kind of moment that isn't the end of it that's almost then the beginning of new more interesting questions that was my experience with her story like i pretty early on i got to a confession point and i was like all right well now i have to know exactly how the fuck we got there like it is very much like okay now i have to get all the words and like i mean i started playing it and got sucked in for like an hour and a half and was like shit i have other things i have to do but like (laughs) It's like, it is so engaging in terms of how you get sucked in to the narrative and how, like, even if you get the confess, like a confession early, you still want to be like, wait, but like, how did we get here? There like, opens it's up still, so many questions. It opens well, this, up I mean, so it, many it, questions. It yeah. came from like me getting very nerdy about detective stories. And there is this evolution from, so you have the Agatha Christie stuff, uh, which, which essentially popularized the genre. And that's like the, the, the whodunit where, you have a puzzling murder and then you have the genius detective and then you, you get through the whole thing. And at the very end, they explain it mm-hmm. and, and it's essentially a puzzle and it's not always a fair puzzle. Right. But, and then the audience becomes, has, has seen so many of these and Agatha Christie has done like every twist, every clever puzzle you could come up with. And the audience is, you know, wise to this, it comes harder and harder to, to satisfy that audience. So then it evolves and becomes the how done it, which is like Columbo. Right. Mm. So an episode of Columbo, you know who did it. They're like, don't worry about that bit. We're going to show you who did it. And then in comes Columbo. You're not quite sure how they covered their tracks, right? You're like, you, I, but you know, this guy did it. So then every scene in which Columbo is in with the murderer, like you have this extra layer of dramatic irony because you know, they did it and you're like, has Columbo figured it out? And so it becomes more sophisticated and and the, the the role of the audience is slightly more complicated. So that becomes very, very popular. Um, and then really kind of in the 90s, you get essentially the why done it, which, you know, there's a lot of serial killer stuff, the kind of Scandinavian detective stuff where, look, the, 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 the mystery, the puzzle, all these tropes, they're just kind of there. But really, we're trying to tell a really deep psychological portrait of why someone murders, right? And yeah. And, so really these become these much more dense, complicated human stories. Uh, even something like 
uh, True Detective, at least the first season, the the real mystery was like the detectives themselves, right? It was the psychological mm-hmm. portrait of these two guys and this twist where you kind of realized that the guy that was you thought was going to be the, the, the straight good guy was the one that had more going on in his head. And even to the point where, like, I think that first season, at the very end, they're like, oh, shit, do we have to, like, solve this crime? <laughs> I guess we do because the audience <laughs> are expecting it. And and they had like the her story moment. So like when I made her story, I was like, everyone's familiar with that moment where people are going through a police database trying to find that one clue because they've hit a dead end. And they literally had it in the end of True Detective. They they like run out of clues. And I think Woody Harrelson is going through the police database and he finds something or some newspaper article about a guy with green paint on his ears. And they're like, we solved the mystery, right? And it was so silly. And it was just, it felt like them going, fuck it, you want, you want this, well, here's the green paint on the ears. It was the gardener all along. You painted the fences green. Boom. And then they had their weird cosmic horror moment. You know, so that, that for me was the jumping off point really for her story was, oh, there's the complexity of these detective stories has increased in terms of the kind of psychology and emotional angle. But they have these these different formats, and and the big difference between the formats is when do you discover the who you know when is the case solved or what elements are being solved. So you know her story was malleable in that it could kind of be any three, depending on on how people kind of tackled it. So I do have a question about your relationship to found footage, the like mm-hmm. Blair Witch Project type of films, because I'm a found footage obsessive <laughs> and your, fi- and your not film, sorry, your games remind me, I mean, like you're finding footage basically. And I'm curious if you have like a relationship to that subgenre or if you did any research in that subgenre and if that at all like influenced how you've worked on these games, like your most recent games at all. So I think with her story, it was very accidental in that I, mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to make something early on. I knew it was going to be about police interviews. And, and that came from like my love of, of shows like Homicide Life on the Street, yeah. um, the British show Cracker. And, and then I set out to learn as much as I could about police interviews. So I did all the training manuals, read all the academic texts, found, and then started wow. finding real life transcripts. It was funny. My, uh, the town we were living in the UK at the time on weekends, my wife would help out at the local library and I was having to get like the official US homicide training manuals. I was having to request books from the central library in London or whatever. So the guy who ran the library was actually worried for my wife that I was planning to, to <laughs> commit murder and get away with it. Cause I was ordering all of these books about how one might Oh no. How many watch lists are you on, Sam? <laughs> it's I get up at this point. I remember I remember stupid when we made Silent Hill, we were doing all this visual research for the artists of like monster like what the monsters should look like. And there was a lot of dark, dark stuff we were having to dig into. And at some point I was like, so I don't get in trouble, I won't search for this at work. I will go home and do it. And now in retrospect, I'm like, that seems like the the worst version of that. Anyway, um, so I was doing all this research and, and, and I just, I started to discover like transcripts of real homicide investigations that were released in, in you know, court discovery or whatever. Um, and at, at, like I was saying earlier, it was just before like serial and making a murderer and, and that stuff blew up. Yeah. And so I was finding 
Uh, I was like obsessed with the Jodie Arias case, and they have all this. Mm. They have all this footage online of her interrogations, and 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 I just watched so much of this stuff that at some point, like my brain was just like, "Hang on a minute, why don't you make a game that uses video footage?" Because wow, you can continue to work with actors without having to pay millions of dollars in motion capture. Like it's a cool, interesting aesthetic. You won't need a massive movie crew yeah. to to replicate this aesthetic. And I know that I think around that time, my dates might be completely wrong, so this might be a lie. But uh, around that time, David Lynch had done Inland Empire. I remember like the fact that David Lynch was running around with a consumer camera shooting digital footage and making something incredible. I was like, well, fuck it. Like if David Lynch is allowed to do that, like I can, I can wallow in this, <laughs> this, this, <laughs> you know, cheap camera aesthetic. So that really, that was it. And then, but then cool. subsequently I, you know, in the, the things I made after it, I became a lot more kind of intentional and was thinking about the traditions and where this stuff came from. So definitely, um, so the war games thing I did was something I directed and, and I was involved in, but I didn't write that was, it was supposed to be like a small experimental pilot for this company that was doing interactive TV stuff. Um, and I think it ended up being the only thing they put out of, of what was supposed to be like 20 or 30 pilots. So what was intended as like, Oh, here's a, a weird little experiment. Uh, I remember at the time I was like, please don't say this is Sam Barlow's next game. And then I think when it came out, the trailer was like, Sam Barlow's next game. Like, okay. um, but starting with, like, that was a good exercise in, like, that was, it, it was, it was a, a reboot of sorts of, like, the, the 80s hacking movie. So we spoke to a lot of modern hackers, and it was very much, you know, plugged into, like, Anonymous and, and what was going on with hacktivists and stuff around that time. So the premise there was there were, at some points, like, eight different screens of all these kids video chatting, and, and and live streaming things and and drone footage and all these bits, um, and and I kind of used that as a test bed, knowing that telling lies was coming, and with telling lies, definitely like I was really interested in what, and and this was before the pandemic, and we all started to live our lives through these things, but it was like, oh, what what is video chat doing? Uh, to communication uh what does it mean to have an intimate relationship over video chat are there you know affordances are the good things bad things um and it was plugging into this idea of the violation of our privacy and intimacy by the government um so that i was very interested in having a very authentic kind of webcam aesthetic we went very deep on i, I like and so i did watch a lot of found footage stuff and and started my list of like do's and don'ts and it was like so many of them like people's eyeline is wrong mm-hmm. you know they're 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 looking at the camera in places when they wouldn't or and, and doing things that look more aesthetically pleasing but are not you know and the, the right. worst stuff yeah. is always like if you have a, a sitcom or a tv show where they have like the one episode where people are going to have like a video chat and and they'll show the screen and it'll be like, this is just a f- high-end film camera, like pointing at them yes. and their body language is all wrong. And I remember the the one film that I held up and we then spoke to some of the people that worked on it was Unfriended. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because I was like, the body language here is really fucking good. I feel like these people are 
on a webcam because if you're on a webcam you're not always looking at the camera <laughs> right. and yeah. you're not posed beautifully in it and and you're looking here and and there is like a really interesting thing as well where which we dug into on telling lies of you can never have eye contact on a webcam right because if if you want to see my eyes i have to look at the camera yep so i can't see for, you <laughs> for two people two people can never share eye contact but you can give the illusion if i look up at the camera it gives the illusion that we're having eye contact mm-hmm. but it's it's a conscious or, or nearly conscious choice versus it being a more fluid natural thing but yeah un- unfriended there was things as well there was there was stuff where like actors were like sat in positions that were not 100% flattering which is a hard thing to ask an actor to do and it, it just it felt very real so we spoke to that team and they were like oh yeah we um we just had webcams or it was gopros in position of webcams and we had everything and this was the big thing that became a huge technical challenge for us on telling lies was we just had everybody in a giant studio space or apartment and everybody was hooked up live. So they oh. were genuinely were live zoom chatting or wasn't, it was Skype back then. Um, so that it was live and they then shot unfriended essentially as a play, like as a, as a, as a one and a half hour play. And they did like seven, ver- they shot it seven times and that was it. And I think, I think the, the final take they did of it was like three quarters of the footage they used. Cause oh, then wow. you get, because obviously it's really hard to cut. So you kind of need things to work as a whole piece and just that back and forth. And as well, like if you're an actor and you're in it, it's very strange for them because on Telling Lies, we we were moving stuff around. So we needed essentially 360 degrees. So you're used to being on a film set surrounded by people with the camera here. And then on Telling Lies, we would take them into their rooms, lock the door. They would be holding these special little rigs, action. And they're just in this real empty room and so they they to get that energy they really needed the other person reacting and right. acting live so when we did telling lies we 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 basically we had these three apartments and then there was a cafe across the road and then there was a uh, i think a, a mexican tv station this was somewhere in la on the corner and we had that and uh there was a garage and we had that and and we basically had this essentially little compound and we ran hard wires between oh my goodness. all of the different places. So we would have like Kerry in this family home and then Logan would be in an apartment here and, and, and Angela was in the garage, which had been set up as this, this cam studio. And as, although I could technically give people takes over like a microphone or whatever, I would give them direction. Like we would call cut and then I would run, <laughs> run between these different physical locations to then oh go direct goodness. people. And there were like PAs whose job it was to tell me not to run because you're not supposed <laughs> to run on a film set. And they would have to try and catch me. <laughs> running it's between like, them. It's, like a, it's like a lifeguard, like a <laughs> San Barlow's lifeguard <laughs> yeah. blowing a whistle, like stop running. <laughs> but yeah, so that was definitely, yeah, telling lies. I was really deep and I was looking at a lot of fan footage stuff. and, and Cool constantly you know that question of why are they still filming why are they filming this right why people are shooting at them that camera would have been dropped five minutes ago and they'd be you know and and yeah so that was that was always the fun thing of of like trying to make sense of that but also as well exploring because it wasn't a movie a more real texture in that we could have scenes that ran real long Mm -hmm. and people could talk like if you have a husband and wife communicating sometimes you have long periods of silence right it's not bam, 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 like you might uh, having kind of movie dialogue. We had stuff like you know, Logan watching his daughter sleep for like... I remember that Excruciating, scene. like seven, ten minutes. And then if something went wrong, we had to start again. And there, was, there was my favorite. There was a scene of 
Logan washing the dishes whilst he watches Angela. Um, that again, like if something went wrong, then we had to start at the top of it. It was like, okay, we're just going to sit here and get, but it was like, and th- again, my dates might be completely wrong here. I feel like Twin Peaks season three, when did that drop? I remember there was a scene in Twin Peaks season three of a guy uh, sweeping the floor. Yes. And it was like, I don't know, it was, I'm going to say it was like two minutes long. And it killed people. People were just like, my brain is dying. This this is crazy to have this in a TV show. Uh, And I was like, are we going to do better than that? Like, we're going to have seven minutes of Logan washing dishes. But it was the interesting (laughs) thing with it. The interactivity was, like, if you just came across that with no context, you'd be like, this is just Logan washing dishes. But then uh, if you find the other end of it and you see what he's watching, he's like, oh, he's watching Angela. Okay, that's kind of interesting. But then when you realize what is happening in his life right now, you're like, oh, these seven minutes is him deciding what the hell am I going to do with this crazy situation? Like, you know, so all of that interesting layering, because like the, the, the premise of telling lies was, the, the metaphor was of a surveillance job, right? A, a surveillance job we get, it's tedious, it's long. You, you know, in an old 70s movie, you're sat in a car just watching nothing. And, and a surveillance job, you always have like a, a limited view, right? You might be mm-hmm. spying through a window or have a spy cam or you're listening in on a listening device. So you don't have that full edited content you would have just of, of just watching someone's life in a more conventional narrative um but then you'll you know you'd be sat nothing interesting will happen and then suddenly you will see <laughs> the people having a meeting on a boat right or whatever yep. and you'll you'll get the the nuggets so we were really trying to play with that texture of things unfolding more slowly of the kind of domestic minutiae of the idea that you kind of come to know these people better than their loved ones might because you're just in all these moments of their life um but yeah, so that that was definitely my found footage thing. And then, although technically immortality is literally found footage, it literally um, is found footage. It's literally is found, found footage. footage. I was like, there was. I definitely made the choice where I was like, okay, having done kind of her story, war games, telling lies. Like the next thing will will not have like the you know GoPro aesthetic or whatever. Like it it will be. Uh, it, we'll we'll try something cinematic, but obviously it is. It, it, whilst it is literally cinematic footage, it is also found and, and you do have those moments of it extending kind of outside of the shot almost. Um, speaking, so speaking of which, and this is a good transition into, into movies, um, I did notice when, when I was on IMDb with the writing credits for Immortality, uh, a person that is very highly regarded on this podcast, Alan Scott, who wrote uh, Don't Look Now. Yeah. What, how, how, did that, how did that come to be? Well, so when we started the research process for mortality, and that was like a year, year and a half, we spoke to a bunch of people that worked in the periods Okay, that, uh, you know, we were like, hey, what was it really like shooting with this director? And, and you know, were, were these things as bad as they look like now? And, and it, was, it was very interesting. Um, we were watching movies um, with our team whilst we were doing this process as well, which was my excuse to just kind of be like, make everybody watch all these weird old movies. <laughs> yeah. And I remember we'd watched, uh, we'd watched Blow Up. To watch that in, in the 2020s, in the midst of, or I think at the time it was in the midst of Me Too, it's like, wow, this main character is so toxic. And there's like this scene where he has essentially assaults these two young teenage girls. And so we were speaking to someone who was shooting movies at that time uh, this, this, this fantastic, uh, woman who was a writer and, and done some directing and 
we were like, so what was it like watching blow up at the time? Like was, did it feel like they were really digging into this, this, this toxic male character? And they were like, no, that wasn't in the movie. They're like, when we saw the movie, this was just flirtation. Like this was just like, they, they were like, genuinely, this was not like in the water. Like this, that was not a theme that we detected in it. And, and mm. so they were, they were very insistent that like we show a lot of that stuff. Uh, and explore some of that side. Um, but we, so we had all these interesting conversations with all these people. And it was like, Oh, these people are like happy to talk to us. <laughs> That's cool. So then we said, well, we should get some writers from the periods involved to write these fictional movies for us. And so then our producer like had this, t- and I was like, here's a list of all the good, mo- <laughs> here are all the movies we really like. Like, did, did anyone that worked on these movies, like, are they still alive? Are they still writing? Will they talk to us? And like, Don't Look Now is probably in my top five. I don't know. Of, it's uh, such a, a good movie. huge Nick Rogue it's... fan. And so they're like, oh, yeah, like, Alan Scott is still around and he's still writing. And I was like, well, what's he writing? And the, the funny story is on his Wikipedia page, I think it said that he was working on a show about chess for Netflix or he was involved in a show about chess for Netflix. So we were like, Oh, that doesn't sound very cool. He's probably, <laughs> he'll be very happy to work with us. So we reached out to him and, and, and a lot of these people were like interested because they were like, well, this sounds cool. Like if, you know, if you're still writing and, and, uh, relatively, I mean, certainly the rest of my team is younger than me, relatively young people are reaching out being like, Hey, do you want to come and work on this cool thing? They're like, Oh yeah, that sounds interesting. So we got Alan in, uh, and, and, and just before we started work, Queen's Gambit came out and we were like, oh shit. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Um, who knew chess was, was right? going to be the big sexy thing, <laughs> but yeah. And it was, the interesting thing was in approaching a lot of them and as well, a lot of times you get this with the actors as well, where they're like, oh, I've always really, you know, you get some actors that are like, I really want to be in a video game. And then they're like, I can't wait to strap on that mocap suit and become a giant alien warlord or whatever and you're like actually this isn't going to be that and and similarly with the writers they're like oh i'm really interested to like figure out like how does how do you write a video game and we're like actually forget we said video game we just want a hundred page screenplay from 1972 um and then you know and the process with them was we had this extremely complicated plan and outline of everything that that was necessary for us and then we so we kind of gave them a a a outline of the fictional movie that was like I don't know, 40 or 60 beats. And, and we said, look, this is the movie as we have it laid out for us right now. And there are, there's reasons for some of these things, you know, there were, there were beats where we're like, Oh, if we want to have this scene where X, Y, Z is happening behind the scenes, that'd be really cool. If it's happening whilst they're shooting this fictional mm-hmm. thing. Um, but feel free to just go and, you know, make it your own. And, and if you go too far, off piece then we'll we'll pull you back in um and yeah then we uh got barry as well so amelia gray who wrote uh a lot of the stuff to have everything um i'd worked with before in telling lies she is fantastic um if if people like horror themed things they probably do if they're listening to this podcast yes. <laughs> uh sure story collection gut shot is dark is so dark and hell yeah Okay. Uh, there's this story called House Heart. I don't think, I don't think this is a spoiler. It's not a spoiler. Um, the premise of House Heart. <laughs> she is so dark. It's wonderful. The premise of House Heart is this couple hires a prostitute 
and puts her in the ventilation ducts of their house and then locks her in. What the fuck? And then just leaves her there. And it's it's okay. and there's other stuff in there that's darker. It's fantastic. Hell yeah. Um, All right, cool. That sounds like my type of stuff. <laughs> and she's she's so like she has such a sarcastic strong way. Like she has such a deadpan delivery of certain things that they they kind of become funny but then almost stop being funny <laughs> it's yeah she's fantastic um and then we we reached out to barry gifford because we talking about with, with our 90s movie we talked a lot about like neo-noir and and like how a lot of the movies towards the end of the 90s were referencing the 70s you had this kind of wave of indie directors that were were kind of looking back at that stuff and and so lost highway had come up mm. um obviously like david lynch's stuff sits at a slight separation from the through line of most movie making. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, oh, this is, this is the core of what's happening in the nineties, but like Lost Highway was in there. Um, and so we reached out to Barry and he was extremely friendly and fascinating guy. And like, so it was so hard when we were reaching out to all these people, cause you'd have conversations and he'd be like, I know we're supposed to be talking about immortality, but could you just tell me some more anecdotes about <laughs> right. working on this movie with Nick Rogue or tell me about your writing process with David Lynch? And and when we reached out to Barry and explained what we were doing, he was like, well, this isn't, he's like, the, the thing is, I only really do Barry things. Like I get offers for movies and stuff, but like I kind of mostly do my own thing, right? And, and so Wild at Heart was an adaptation of one of his pieces, obviously Lost Highway was an original thing that he wrote with Lynch. Mm-hmm. So we, it, I can't, I don't think, like, I know we'd had this idea, so maybe it didn't completely come out of Barry, but a big part of immortality was like my interest in how much things are in flux creatively right up until the moment they're finished. And, and Mm -hmm. we might think like, oh, the, the shipped cut of this movie is kind of the perfect, you know, that's the, it's, it's, that's the canonical perfect version of this movie. And then like, if you, dig into movies at all you're like well actually like the script was so different and and the actor changed his scene on the day and like oh well they reshot this scene of indiana jones because he had dysentery right or like you you learn all these things that and some of it's very random some of it's intentional but you just realize how this kind of idea almost that like a director is like here is my vision for the movie <laughs> and then it materializes like right. it's, it's not how things work at all um and so Barry was like, well, I have uh, stories of mine, scripts of mine that I'd be happy to give to you that you could turn into something. And then we are really into the idea. Like I say, maybe this was in there before. I'm trying to remember. I think it was explicitly Barry, but like the genesis of Lost Highway in particular is a great example of this process in that Lynch and, and Barry set out to adapt another one of his stories uh, or books. And they spent, I think, like a year on this and it just wasn't working for them. So I think Lynch was like, why don't we just write something original? Like the two of us are smart, creative guys. We can do this. But he picked out, there were two lines of dialogue that were in the script they were working on. One of them was something, something, something where Apache's on the lost highway. And then another one, which I think is in the final movie, was something about being a mean son of a bitch. I can't remember. And, and Lynch was like, these two, I like these two lines of dialogue. <laughs> and then it kind of became Lost Highway and they, right. they riffed on an element of it and it transformed. So we then were like, well, hang on a minute. What if we have that as part of our fiction that 
our director is working on a Barry Gifford adaptation. And Barry <laughs> gave us this story of his that was a really cool story uh, called Tell Him I'm Dangerous. In making that, it becomes part of the story that it involves twins. And so in the late 90s, they're playing with some of the cutting edge green screen tech that allows them to have a single act to play both roles, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, Cronenberg did in Dead Ringers, I think really well. And in the process of developing this movie, the director actually becomes really interested in this idea of doubling. And then there's like a throwaway line that Barry Gifford says that sets him off on a different journey. Um, and, and we're like, and Barry, could we put you in the story as an actual character? So that, hmm. uh, And he was like, sure. Um, and for a time, we were going to get Barry to play Barry. Uh, and then we couldn't, in the midst of the pandemic, the logistics uh, didn't work out. Mm. Uh, plus, we'd have had to de-age him, and we didn't quite have the the Marvel budget. Right, <laughs> uh, um, right. We did have, like, there's a few other real people in there. We did, we tried really hard. We wanted to get permission to have Dino De Laurentiis as oh, the wow. producer of the first two movies. Because um, we did, like, it was a big, I was obsessed with the Dino De Laurentiis story and, and his uh, Dino Sitter studios he set up. Uh, where they shot the Bible and Barbarella, mm-hmm. um, and then things didn't work out. And, and the extent to which he had come out of like the, that rebirth of European cinema came out of the end of the Second World War. So we were really into that. And, and so we essentially wrote the story of Dean and Laurentiis as a huge part of it, then went to his estate and were like, Hey, we love and respect your father or grandfather. Like we'd love for you to give us permission. And they thought about it and they had like two or three family meetings about it or something. Um, oh, wow. and then they decided, that uh, his his character and role was too adjacent to uh, like Me Too content, uh, which I mean, in all fairness, like Dino De Laurentiis married the young seventeen year old that he cast in one of his early movies. So yeah, you know, it's that. like that's it's huh. that world. But um, so so the character of of Gino Gino De Giorgio uh, in Immortality, <laughs> um is an amalgam of several different Italian film producers. Gotcha. Yeah. So that was, I mean, yeah. And getting to work with, yeah, it was, it almost felt not indulgent, but it felt, I was like, wait a minute. So you can just decide to ask people that made your best movies to work with you. And they'll say, yes. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh. No one, like no one else try this. (laughs) I don't want, I don't want them to have to start saying no. Right. Uh, well, let's let's take a quick commercial break, and then when we get back, discuss your movie that you brought with you today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. New activation and upfront payment for three-month plan required. Taxes and fees extra. Additional restrictions apply. See mintmobile.com for full terms. Are you tired of doing the same workouts day in, day out? Well, check out the Peloton app. Wherever you are, whatever your mood, the Peloton app has something for you. Lunch hour power walk. Park Pilates. Beach yoga. The Peloton app has it all. Try it today. Download the Peloton app and get your first 30 days free. New paid memberships only, starting at $12.99 a month after trial unless canceled. Terms apply. And we're back. <laughs> All right. 
So, Sam, what movie did you bring with you today for us to discuss? I have brought the animated French movie known as The Time Masters. Hell yeah. So in Time Masters, Piel, a young boy, is alone on the desert planet Perdide, right? Yeah. Only The only survivor of an attack by giant hornets. Calling for help, Piel's father's friend Jafar keeps contact with the kid and hurries across space towards the planet. Yeah. So, okay. This was the first time I think Mary Beth and I had ever heard of this movie. So yeah. take us take us back to when you first saw it. Um, how old were you? How did you see this movie? Uh, give us your horror story. We want to hear everything. So this this is kind of fun because this is like that thing where you've seen things as a child and you half remember them and then you start to question if they did exist or not, right? And then yes. I'm of I'm of the right age where it, there was a period where you couldn't even prove these things existed. And then the internet started to become a thing. Yep. And then there was like Yahoo groups. You'd go to like the Yahoo groups and post like, does anyone else remember this movie where blah, 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 blah happened? And sometimes <laughs> that would play out. Now I think you can pretty much just find anything, right? But so so now uh, I did did my fact checking. And so basically this movie, Time Masters, was the version I saw, I believe, was only ever shown on the on the BBC and they dubbed it. So it was a BBC dub. Oh. And it was shown on Saturday the 19th of December 1987 at 2 p.m. on BBC2. Uh, and, and you can find like the TV listings to this thing. So I know exactly where and when I was wow. when I watched this. Because this was the only time they showed it. Like Because back then things didn't re-air and stream endlessly, yep. right? So they they were like, hey, there's this French animated movie. We'll stick it on. So this would have been, and so I would have been uh, nine. I was nine years old when I saw this. Um, and so I'm, I'm imagining this would have been a, a lazy Saturday afternoon and I'd been left to my own devices and I'd just I'd turn the TV on and, and see this movie and then sit and watch it, and then subsequently, as a nine-year-old, now understand that death is real, and that we all die, and that there's just this yawning chasm of of emptiness (laughs) awaiting us. (laughs) That's very existential. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, Yeah. so this movie, I mean, beyond the specific bit that scarred me for like, I mean, this is a it's French. It's weird. It has like designs from like Mobius and, mm-hmm. and, and it's the, the director has done uh fantastic planet. And mm-hmm. this thing is another one that people is perhaps more famous. And it's, it's just this weird trippy. It's like the trippiest version of star Wars. It's cause the, yes. and, and you can tell it's, it's clearly plugging into that, right? Like mm-hmm. there's, there's a guy who is essentially Mick Jagger. Like he just looks like like Mick Jagger could probably have sued them. So he's like this French version of Mick Jagger, and then there's this kind of David Bowie evil prince guy who smokes, and it's it's very weird. And then and there's these strange little creatures that feel like they're there for the kids that have some weird that are psychic and telepathic shrews. They're called the shrews. Yeah, telepathic buddies. And you get and then you just get to this weird little episodic bit towards the end of these weird angels that want to destroy everyone's individuality and 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 it's but it's 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 such a weird movie so it's called the time masters right 
And the Time Masters don't show up until the last four minutes of the movie or something. <laughs> I literally yeah. wrote, last 15 minute time yeah. travel reveal? Like, okay, I, Which sure. is, so yeah, so the whole movie ultimately is is a time travel riff. And, and again, like, I think some of the most fun stuff you do with time travel is stuff that makes you feel really sad, right? Uh, um, was it um, Arrival? I think uh-huh. recently does, they do a similar late reveal mm-hmm. of a thing that's going on where you're like, oh shit, that's really sad. And this, this does that. And it's, it's, yeah, it's such, I mean, to watch it again, I was watching it as a nine-year-old. So probably very similar to the little kid. And it opens with this little kid being stranded on this alien planet. His dad, his mum has died off screen uh-huh. and his dad dies in the first few seconds of the movie. And then he's just left alone on this planet with this microphone that uh, people can talk to. And so instantly I'm like, oh my God, this is like every kid's primal fears. And, and it's, and it, but it, you know, it has like the, the wonders of being on this strange alien planet with weird fruit, but really it's just kind of sad and lonely and scary. Um, and, and yeah, I don't, I don't want to. I'm not going to spoil. I don't know. Are we allowed to? Oh, we spo- should, oh, we spoil it. everything. We're spoil it. Yeah, we can just, is, okay, so we can yeah, spoil it. Yeah, but like spoil the reveal, like so, the whole movie is searching to rescue this kid. Right, the whole movie they're traveling in theory through the galaxy to reach this kid and rescue him. And on the way, they pick up this strange old man who's very fun, and he hangs out with the kid over the microphone. And and at the very end, the time masters show up, create a weird time paradox. And it turns out that they'll never rescue the kid because he's been thrown back in time. And actually the kid grows up to be this old man who then dies. Yeah, every fear a nine-year-old might have about life and death, it's like, boom, like this kid. In, in Obviously he lives a full life, but in the context of the movie, like you kind of jump from little kid to being rescued to then, oh, he dies as an old man. After, like, accidentally going into a time paradox that basically kills him, which is also the kid getting rescued at the same time, which it's like, the kid as an old man dies because of a time paradox, like how I read it, but also he gets saved because the planet randomly appears in front of, like, a space, like an old grizzled space traveler who saves him from being attacked. (laughs) Sorry about that. He's attacked by giant hornets. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, so this is, so in terms of being scarred for life, like it interest, the really interesting thing was when you asked me like, what's the movie? I was like, oh, genuinely, this is the one that, that, like I say, as a nine year old just opened up this, this awareness of, of death in a very French way. And <laughs> but the scene I remembered that was like, so I didn't remember, you know, I, none of the details I remembered about this movie. Like I knew sci-fi kid on planet. Uh, I knew that like he, there's an old man and it's hit and he's the old man and he dies and it's horrible. But the scene I remembered that scared the fuck out of me as a kid was, and I told you when you reached out to me that this was the opening scene. And actually it's not, I, cause my memory misremembered it and yeah. this time travel. It's actually really near the end. So it this is. kid has been waiting to be rescued. He's been told repeatedly, or we've heard repeatedly, he shouldn't go near the lake. The lake is dangerous. And the the evil prince, who's like really evil, really, really evil. evil, like he doesn't want to get distracted. So he tells this kid, this nine-year-old kid, to go to the lake. It's so sick. Um, so the kid goes to the lake, almost drowns. You're like, oh, God. And then having it almost drown, the hornets show up. And there's this shot 
where he's just surrounded by these clicking giant insect things. Yes. Absolute nightmare fuel. Horrific. And then they attack him. And so, yeah, the grizzled space pirate shows up just in time to save him. But the really horrific detail is as as he's being carried, his, his lifeless body's being carried away by the space pirate guy, the hornets who eat people's brains eat or something people's brains. Um, yes. have already eaten through the hair on the top of his head and there's this little trickling bloody wound on the top of his head which i think is the the, the older guy has a metal plate on his head yep. and i think this is the wound that causes that um but it's it reminds me of so i i do like this little talk where i talk people through hitchcock's the birds and 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 how clever the opening 30 40 minutes of that movie are um and there's this detail in that with the the first bird attack of the birds is set up so you're kind of expecting going into the movie theater especially with all the the pre-release that Hitchcock put out uh, bird attacks horrific giant mass bird attacks and the scale of it and the horror of it and and Hitchcock Hitchcock holds off on a bird attack for like a good 30 minutes of that yeah. movie and the first time a bird attacks it attacks Melanie the main character uh, who at this point you're subconsciously wanting to get attacked because she's kind of a stuck up <laughs> rich woman and the seagull attacks and it just cuts her forehead and she has this immaculate hairdo and stuff and she looks so traumatized by it and it's just there's something about the the intimacy of this little forehead cut that is so much more horrific than seeing someone like torn to shreds by birds and similarly like this this little cut on this guy's head flash forward to many many years in the future and i'm like i have this weird memory of this time travel movie where would i have seen it kid being attacked by these horrific insects like just genuinely that was chilling and terrifying and that again and then watching it again my my memory was that oh that happens at the start of the movie and then he's like in trouble uh but again that being kind of the payoff of the point where you're expecting him to get saved because that's the whole movie is they're racing to the planet to save him uh is is actually no that the evil space hornets get to him and it's horrific. And yeah, this, the, and, and one of the few, if you search for this movie, one of the few images or, or kind of gifts that exists is of that moment. Yeah. yeah. So clearly uh-huh. it registered for the, the, the few people that saw it. I don't know if like, I don't know if a lot of people saw this movie in France or maybe a lot of people saw it on this one afternoon on the BBC. It with seemed me. like, um, cause like I was trying to find, cause I, I had never heard of this film before. Although I will say, I think that I was over at a friend's house who was playing this movie at some point because there's a moment when the angels come down. And I when I saw that watching this for the for the first time, really, I was like, this looks so familiar. And it might have been one of my friends was like really big into like the kind of weird animation of like the 70s and 80s. Like Mm. he watched a lot of like wizards. So I remember seeing wizards at his place and seeing like. I think there's a scene from this movie and also like some other uh, random weird 70s, 80s type animation movies. And so I have that memory, but I don't remember this movie whatsoever. I had never heard of it. I had to go like Google it and everything. But like this movie is I, I was expecting more of a kid like friendly movie, but I don't think this movie is meant for kids. No, absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely fucking not. I was laughing watching this. I was like, I can see where they thought that they were like making some kid friendly moments, especially with like the little shrew guys that are like kind of childlike. And then when PL, the little boy, is in the weird forest, there's like funny little creatures that fall, like, 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 
yeah, yeah. there's the yeah the one weird camel alien wow. camel wow. Wow. Yeah, it's like yeah and so there's like these cutesy moments but then again like the wawa is devoured by some weird tentacle creature in a cave and there's like skeleton wrangled. leftovers holding mike i'm oh, like what the mike? fuck like it's all of these things that like for a hot second be like oh this is like alice in wonderland and then you're like just kidding this is some fucking weird like space <laughs> space nightmare like it definitely does not feel children oriented because like fantastic planet wasn't oriented for kids really and like that was his first this guy's first movie with like people if you haven't seen it it's like giant blue people and it's much more like abstract and philosophical than this one this one is very much just like weird art house star wars um (laughs) with weird like swimming in a lake montages that feel like sec- a sex scene, like oh, a forest. They put, they, it's like such a like a twenty five percent of the animation budget went on that rotoscope uh-huh. swimming sequence. You're like suddenly, suddenly, like the animation quality like goes through the roof for the, for like two minutes of like these gorgeous two people swimming together. Just beautiful, yeah. like music video vibes of just two people definitely not having sex with each other in the water. Definitely, like, definitely not. not telegraphing a sex scene and then some kind of attraction between the two of them while that weird thing is pulsating in the water that where the like the the shrews hatch out of and the shrews like as much as they're like you could see someone pitching them as they're like oh they're like the cute muppets they're the r2d2 whatever but they reminded me more of um uh in last one tree is the kingdom where they have the the two cooks who who uh it's i don't even i don't even know if this is problematic or not because it's Lars von Trier, but and like they both, I think, have like Down syndrome. But they it gives them. And this is kind of a cliche, right? Of like that they have a slightly mystical take oh, on reality, okay, right? Yeah. And, but so they they kind of serve as like the Greek chorus for the kingdom. Well, they'll they'll narrate what's going on almost or comment on it, but from this perspective that's not in it. It's like this slightly removed philosophical kind of perspective. But yeah. that's yeah, the little cartoon guys. They're not there to like have fun and you know, mess about. They're like, oh, these humans have bad thoughts. He's going to yeah. murder the child. We should probably let him because humans just do bad things. Like, We're going to dump their treasure out of the <laughs> ship just for fun. And his thoughts stink. Well, that that's what, like, so they're cute and it definitely feels a little childlike and they're, like, floating around and they're getting into mischievous things, dumping the, the treasure out of the ship and everything. But, like, their existence around humans is horrible because all they can do is hear their thoughts and so like when the ship is full of people their thoughts are a cacophony of like people getting drunk and all this other stuff that is Mm. really affecting them and so even though they are these cute little maybe the r2d2s of the of the movie their life is existential pain and torture (laughs) and that's like dark in and of itself it's like anytime there is something cute and happy about this the movie finds a way to make it terrifying like the idea of mike listen to mike this is the microphone that is obviously going to keep him in touch with jafar and and keep him uh safe is used against him his wawa is ends up getting devoured by tentacles like everything this movie sets up to be kind of cutesy it just like says no fuck you well it reminds me of uh when we're working on silent hill i was obsessed with so the story babes in the wood which Mm -hmm. like disney did a version of and it's very similar to a lot of stories where essentially there's uh, these two kids who I guess are the the descendants of the king and the king's evil brother kills the king. And to become 
ruler, whatever, uh, has his henchmen take these two children into the woods to murder them. And, but the henchmen can't bring themselves to murder these two children. So they leave them. And I think in like the Disney version, like the kids struggle and eat berries and stuff, but then like the cute woodland animals help bring them food and yeah. look after them. In the original story, the kids just die. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And there is this incredible, <laughs> if you Google this, I think it's on like the Gutenberg project. Uh, there's an illustrator called Caldecott, I think, who did an illustrated version of the babes in the woods. And the final panel literally brings me, it kills me every time is of these two young kids dead and the woodland animals like place leaves over their corpses or something to like put them to rest. Jesus. And like, I, I think when we were making Silent Hill Shadow Memories, I had had my first kid and we were making this game where the, the premise was this is missing child, but actually it's, it's, it's kind of subverted. But I remember giving that to like one of my level designers of like my, Make me a level that's like sad. <laughs> here's here's this story that's really fucking dark. Now make that into a game that people can yeah. play. Yeah, just fun. just and and but you know this had that similar thing of like, hey, it's this story of this this lost kid, and it's not the kid's not going to get rescued because yeah, if you dump a kid on an alien planet or if you throw a couple of babes into some woods, it's not it's gonna not going to go, go well. well. But no. that's like, I mean, that's. I guess now, like the Pixar movie template is that kids will, cry, well, the grownups will cry a lot and the kids will have a learning experience, but, but fundamentally, you know, someone will die, but usually they'll kill off like the old person, right? Or, you know, so, so you, you kind of have, you know, it's like getting the kid a pet so they can experience mortality, but it's like this, this safe way of someone dying and being sad mm-hmm. and then the kid will have a learning lesson. But if you go back to the older fairy tales, it's like, no, the kid's going to die. Yeah. Because all these stories were written. Always. I have this this book of um, I think it's called Fairy Tales of the Soviet People. That um, when Ooh. I was little, uh, for two years when I was a kid, we lived in Tanzania, um, oh, wow. and I didn't have access to television or much of anything, and so I had like four books. And my parents had bought me this book. I think at like an airport, and it was a collection of like Russian, Ukrainian, whatever uh, folk tales. And they were all so mean because the life lesson they were trying to impart was life is hard and then you die and you can't trust your family and anyone that has money is inherently evil and the people ruling over you will crush you. And so it's story after story of like, there's this one that my kids love uh, about the rich, the, it's called the, the rich brother and the poor brother. And there's like this guy and he can't afford to eat, keep his, he can't afford to feed his family. So he goes to his rich brother. And he's like, oh, rich brother, could you give me a, a bowl of grain? And his brother's like, eh, I don't really feel like that. And he's like, please give me a bowl of grain. He's like, okay, but you have to cut out one of your eyes. Jesus. The guy cuts his eye out and gets the bowl of grain. And then he comes back the next time. He's like, I need another bowl of grain. He's like, well, cut out your other eye. And it, and it goes on. Um, and, and it ends with, there is, there is, that is one of the few stories where there is justice. Uh, because the, the brother who at some point has like cut his eyes out and I don't know if he's chopped his hands off. Is, is resting under a tree and some devils at night land on the tree and they discuss that they have some secret magic power that they've hidden somewhere. So the, the brother goes and finds the magic power and, and then he is able to become rich and, and, and find food for his wife. And so then his, his evil brother comes over and he's like, how the hell have you done this? What's going on? And because he's a good despite everything that's happened, he's still a good brother. He's like, oh, well, I was under this tree and heard these devils speaking blah 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 so then 
the the evil brother goes and sits under the tree and the devils all return at night and they're talking and he listens to them talking and they're like, somebody's been using our magic power. Um, they must have overheard us talking at night and they look and they see the the evil brother. So they then in, in the story, it's like they ripped off his face and oh pulled out his brain or something. And my kids love that one. I love that your kids love that. Your kids but sound yeah, awesome. All, these, all those stories... <laughs> Yeah, pre like Disney fixing all of our fairy tales, they were all they all end pretty badly, and so they I do. guess this yeah weird little French Star Wars, um, you know, felt the need to tap into that. Yeah. What I what I do think is what I think is funny is this uh, Rene Lalou, I believe I'm mm-hmm. not sure is I think that's how you pronounce his name that directed this, and also um, another one of the fantastic planet as you had mentioned mary beth which are both written by stefan wool and there's a quote um that i found where he talks about his him as a, as an author and renee says in all woo's novels mostly it's a great idea to start the first two thirds are great well built with a coherence and playwriting etc and the final third is a little shitty <laughs> or he ran out of time got tired or started getting lazy and so this is the man that has directed at least two of his his books as animated fantastic planet and this one i don't know if there were other ones but i just i thought that was really kind of kind of funny that that's what he has to say about the writer of the the book he's not wrong like not to be a dick but like this movie does like after the angels like after like the prince okay so we have this horrible moment where the prince is telling the kid to walk into a lake and And very interesting that they don't like because when we're talking when they're talking to the kid via mic we we cut between like the little kid and the spaceship but here we just hear him talking to the kid and this like harrowing moment of just hearing this kid go it's so cold and i'm thinking Ugh. wait what is happening in this movie because it, ha- it all happens like it all like with no fanfare i feel like it just kind yeah. of like starts happening and you're like wait i'm so sorry are we watching someone try to murder a child and then we get him going to this planet and the Jafar going after him, and it's this planet run by faceless angels who then kidnap them and bring them to their like their um. It's I I perceived it as God or like a godlike figure who the little shrews talk about as like pure thought, and the only mm-hmm. way to fight back is to like think the opposite of pure thought and like absolutely destroy it. So we just see, we just happen to have this little horrific vignette of faceless angels, like cover, like wrapping them in fleshy, weird tendrils and bringing them to their god to eliminate individuality. The bliss of sameness. (laughs) The bliss of sameness. We're going to like very explicitly say we're going to remove your individuality. And I was like, oh, I guess we're just going to anti-religion just sprinkled in here a little bit. Like feels very much like. They're obviously with the angels, like yeah. telegraphed imagery. And then it just goes to the next part. And I was like, I'm sorry, are we going to like go back to the part with like the faceless angels and the weird God society? Because this is where the prince like redeems himself by sacrificing yeah, himself. His... Well, he has one God. useful attribute, right? Is that he hates Stop. himself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like he's so full of self-loathing. He can destroy the pure thought by <laughs> trying to absorb his hatred for himself. If you want to kill God, just be full of self. And then, like, the payoff of that sequence is that they basically, all the angels then turn back into this ragtag Star Wars collection of people. Yeah. So they then just get this cool team of, like, awesome aliens and cool shit on their ship, which they use for, like, five seconds. And then they 
they they pull off they do some some shape shifting weirdness it's it's they're space fascists the reform is it the reformists <laughs> yeah all like all of a sudden it's like this very con- like not contained but it's like these characters are all on their own thing and then in the last like 20 minutes it's like oh by the way there's space fascism there is a planet of angels that we I'm pretty sure when does the, the nazi salute they do, no, they 100% do. I'm like, great. So again, and that's when I was like, this is 100% Star Wars. So we have the fascist with the giant, like, it's like evil Mario, like with a mm-hmm. giant red M on there. And they do like the, the salute and ever and like the Hail Hitler, Hail Hitler salute. And I was like, wait a second, there's a lot of lore going on here that I think we have just forgotten. And then we're getting at the last minute. And it's very like, the pacing is just insane. So I didn't, I... I had no idea because I hadn't been as thorough as you in my research. So I didn't realize these were adapted from this guy's books. Because there's yeah. this whole interesting thing as well of like, and you get it with, with like Star Wars and you get it with um, when they try to do the John Carpenter of Mars movie of like things you were like, oh, that's Star Wars. But then you're like, oh, but maybe this is actually the thing that George Lucas was ripping off in Star Wars, right? And all these layers because looking at so yeah this guy i didn't realize fantastic planet and this which was written the book was called the orphan of perdide yes yeah. these these were je- these were 50s sci-fi novels so they they massively precede star wars they do uh, yeah yeah 50s sci-fi novels and but the titles are incredible this this, <laughs> this guy wrote rays for siddhar the giant fear the temple of the past the living death trap on zarkas great names guy was just the, living the, his fantasy the, the, the savage fantasy planet life. the book was called oms by the dozen i don't know what yep. an om is but That's so this guy aliens. wrote basically batshit french sci-fi novels during that kind of golden age of sci-fi in the 50s mm-hmm. and then this animator shows up in the 70s and is like let's make some trippy 70s versions of these <laughs> things so he was it says he was a dental surgeon but science fiction was his real passion <laughs> um <laughs> i you love know? that he's like he's like giving people a root canal whilst he's thinking about this kid trapped <laughs> on the can i can yeah. i so while i have my fingers in your mouth and you can't talk can i just bounce some ideas off of you real quick <laughs> but like the other uh. thing the other thing with this mo- with this movie, particularly like with the animation style, is it is very reminiscent to me of like that era of um, anime because I'm a big mm-hmm. I'm a big anime person, um, and this is like this is a little bit this is like this is in 1982, so this is actually right around when Akira came out. If you guys mm-hmm. have seen or Akira the the manga and the the movie Akira came out a couple years later. But it's just really interesting to see how these, like, while, you know, animation in France and Japan are obviously very different, to see how they're kind of informing each other, specifically with how this one shapes, like, how we see space and also, like, spaceship design. Mm. It's just really cool to see how the cyberpunk tendencies that I, you see in Japanese animation, like, perhaps may have influenced or at least, like, given some inspiration to how they might have done Time Masters specifically. I mean, the fr- I remember... Before anime was a thing in the UK, I remember going going on vacation to France and they were really into it. Because I think like animation and cartoons and comics is a much bigger deal in France. Yeah. And and as well, like, I remember being surprised as a kid because they would have um, like comics for adults mm-hmm. on the newsstand or whatever. Whereas in the UK, we had like 2000 AD, which was for like, you know, the grungy teens or whatever. But like... <laughs> It was a much bigger deal in France, so that, and they were, but they were massively into manga and anime. So there's clearly like a lot of kind of cross pollination going on there, and obviously, like I think Mobius 
his ship designs have been in Ugh, Mobius. so many movies and like he's got his, his he fingers did, he, in the, he the did pie alien, He did Alien. He did a lot. Like, so Mobius, for people who aren't familiar, he's a pretty prolific comic book artist. He did The Ink Call, which is a pretty popular like series. Um, I'm not as familiar with him, but my husband is like really into Mobius and his style because he um, he wrote this, I believe, and helped animate half of it, which is why some of the animation in this looks really good and some of it doesn't. I think he mm. because they had like really limited budgets. Mobius mm. helped animate and design ha- about half of wow. the movie, and the other half is like, good luck. <laughs> there are definitely some shots in this that are just straight up like, wow, that's a really pretty shot. I'd say a lot of the stuff with space, a lot of stuff with the space and the spaceships. Yeah, like a lot of of it is pretty. There are obviously, like, it's not as, like, flawlessly animated as Fantastic Planet is, but, like, it is really, still really gorgeous to look at. I think some of the the disconnect you're talking about with, like, the child murdering comes from, in the most emotionally intense moments, the characters' faces have, like, two frames. Yeah, they're not, they're very much just like, oh no. Yeah. (laughs) Like... Or sometimes it doesn't even look like their mouths are moving when dialogue is happening. So it, there is like a very, but because like I was reading Letterboxd reviews of this, so I was curious. People were like, oh, this is like not even close to as good as Fantastic Planet, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I still think this movie is incredible. Like, yeah, there might be some pacing issues and some animation issues, but I still think it's incredible to watch. It's beautiful. And it's just so weird. And it's just such a cool experience. I mean, it's definitely, it's a lot more accessible than Fantastic Planet. It is 100% more accessible you, than Fantastic You Planet. need to be in the right mode to, to watch that hallucinatory it's, strangeness. Yes. Uh, it's got so many, like, blue boobs. Like, it's... it's blue boobs it's, and, like, names. It's, it's, it's when James Cameron, you know, is, is, <laughs> is daydreaming about Pandora... And lets himself <laughs> step outside his PG thirteen, right? That's it's a it lot of that. Truly is, and there's like a lot of different names to keep track of, but there's also like a lot of philosophical things yeah. happening. It's very like, kind of Zardozzy, right? It's yes. kind of that. I've and not. This- I've actually not seen Fantastic Planet. This was my first introduction to the this anime. This animation. It's yeah. It's. I mean, it doesn't it's have weird. as much dialogue and stuff. It's just. It's. It's, it's beautiful it's, to watch, but it's it it's not. The plot is very like to the is like a side thing to what you're watching happen. It's more of like a gotcha. visual experience than like a story. And here, it's much more very like accessible. A, this one, this one is very accessible. Like I wrote that down. I was like, oh, this one feels much more like grounded, even though it's still a weird ass sci fi movie. Like you're pretty, you 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 know what's going on. And Fantastic Planet, you're like who. What? Which is which huh? is why I'm now fascinated knowing that it's based on a book by the same guy. Because I'm like, oh, that was a book? Like, I guess. Yeah, I wonder what reading that must have been like. But, yeah. There's such a, there's such a, 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 a good source of slightly trippy sci-fis. Because, the like, Planet of the Apes was based on a French sci-fi novel, yeah. right? Like, I feel like... Oh, yeah. That's right. At some point, someone must have been like, hey, guys, get yourself a French-speaking assistant. And we'll <laughs> we go through all these... Sci-fi novels because there's some trippy shit. Uh, there is a lot of trippy ship and shit in this, but I'll tell you the speak to, to briefly touch on the animation again. There's a moment when um, the prince is like tentacles are grabbing into him and he's screaming and it's set on flames. It is like oh god, horrifying, yeah, but also like beautiful. Like yeah. it's it seems it, it it's it's the most beautiful depiction of absolute agony that I've seen. Because I was like that is a stunning shot, but also holy shit, this is 
really kind of horrifying. And I, I think that I, what I think the animation does in this is it sort of like subtly belies some of the more horrible things that are happening because we have like Wawa being eaten and there's just that still shot My of the, the, the bones being left <laughs> over or that just that, that slight indication that there's violence happening on the kid's scalp is the, after he's being mm. let up. It's just like these moments of, that look really stunning, but then it's like, oh God, this is actually quite horrific. And I think this movie does that incredibly well by balancing sort of the horror and then a love and, and desire for really good animation. It's it's such a balancing act. Mm. Well, do we want to wrap up and give this our rating out of, out of five? Sounds good. All right. So Terry, you were up first. How many featureless angels out of five <laughs> do you give Time Masters? Um, I mean, you know, I was really surprised by this. I wasn't sure what I was getting into with a, a French animation from 1982 <laughs> that I'd never heard of. And I'm like, I don't I'm not sure what I'm going to what I'm going to experience. But I really enjoyed this. I love that I could follow the plot very easily without having to know like what the novel was. I, I thought it was very accessible. I thought it was very animated incredibly well in a lot of places. Some of it, maybe not so much. Um, a little iffy towards the end with like how things are all of a sudden like this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. The end. But um, I, I really enjoyed it. So I'm going to probably give it four featureless angels um, and join their sameness. What about you, Mary Beth? Um, I'm also going to give this four featureless angels. As everyone knows, I love a good biblically accurate angel. So I got really excited when we had some <laughs> weird angel imagery going on. But besides that, I'm, I mean, I'm also a huge sucker for weird trippy animation, especially older trippy animation. So this was just like a delightful treat to, to watch and, I was, again, because of Fantastic Planet, I was expecting, like, some weird-ass philosophical, like, nonsense, which I love. But here, it was just, like, a much more kind of straightforward, weird space story, and I absolutely love that. Um, we get some Jedi shit at the end with the Time Masters who are glowing green. <laughs> neon green. Neon green. That took me by surprise as well, because not having, like, seen it since I was an infant... The, the the box art and the posters is of the angel, right? Is is of the cool angels yeah. and this is the time masters. So in my head I'm like, oh the that they must be the time masters. And then it's yeah. literally I mean it's so funny because it's called the Time Masters and it's literally the close the, the first time you see a Time Master is literally one of the final shots. And like you say, it's then a, and it's the weird glowing guy. And you're like, okay, that's the Time Masters. And you're cool. like, that's the Time Master. And you're like, oh cool. The title of the movie we see for two seconds as they shoot Silbad, who is the little kid, off into space at a space funeral. It's so weird, but I just I loved watching it. it it's an incredible and it like it's a short experience too. So like it's just it was, I'm so glad I got to watch it and it's really hard to find. So thank you, Sam, for sending us the files. <laughs> yeah. I was like, why is it so hard to find? Cause I think, I don't know. I think this would do, do well to be like rediscovered. Yeah. Criteria's got fantastic planet and, um, just do, just do this one too. Um, yeah. but Sam, you have the final word. How many features? angels? I was, was also not to be a featureless angel and toe the line. Uh, <laughs> I was also thinking for, um, <laughs> Yeah, like yeah, so, yeah. My memory of this was was just the general horror of of as a as a child watching this story of of the most extreme version of this kid confronting his mortality and and the horror of insects. Um, but then, so then you know, seeing it and being like, oh, there's all this other weird stuff, and there's this sexy swimming, and just 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, it's, it's close. What is it? How long is it? It's it's around it's like 90 minutes. Hour, it's like an hour and 15 it's like, minutes. It's yeah, like it's less. Super- I mean, sub if you can do a movie and it's sub 90 minutes... I'm going to like it, whatever. Like, <laughs> Same. As, as someone to... that reviews movies, the moment it's over 90 minutes, I'm like, ugh. <laughs> yeah. If you can get it under 90, you're going to have to try real hard for me not to like your movie. Um, but yeah, no, this is, yeah, I think you would not, you, you couldn't fail to have a good time watching this, putting it on and being like, what am I watching? Yeah, absolutely. It has like cool, cool music. Like the music is really. The music is good. You know, when you go out to the credits and you've had this catharsis realization of what's going on and life and death, and then they throw in some kind of synthy 80s sci-fi stuff. It's wonderful. It's living. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Sam, to talk about your games and also uh, this movie and bring it to our attention. Where can our listeners find you? Um, do you have anything you can share or plug uh, that's coming up? Um, I think for now, this might date rapidly. You can find me on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, I am Mr. Sam Barlow, Mr. Sam Barlow. And yeah, I mean, uh, Immortality came out most recently. You can play that on uh, Steam, on Game Pass. Uh, it's on phones through Netflix games. Uh, you can check out my other games. Yeah, if you want to see what happens to a nine-year-old when you expose him to strange French movies about death <laughs> at an early age, you can go play Immortality, which is me... In my 40s, thinking about death. <laughs> um, so there, yeah. is a, there is a direct through line there. This is what happens. I have not, I have not shown this movie to my kids. Maybe I should. Maybe it'll help. Ooh. You know, set, set, set them on the path. <laughs> Put them on the of path of creativity. Worrying too much about death. <laughs> and everyone, check out the games. They're, they, you can play them relatively quickly, but get ready to get sucked into them and not be able to do anything for the rest of your day because you're not going to be able to put them down, um, in my experience anyway. But listeners, Same. you've heard from us. We want to hear from you. What was your experience with Time Masters? Have you seen Time Masters? I would love to know. Um, you can send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com or you can reach out to us directly on Twitter. I am at MB McAndrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. And if you want to help support us, we do have a Patreon. Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right 
and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.